Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. I am Lisa Jones Harwell, your host of Journeys with Jones Harwell. This morning, I am so excited, so honored that we have retired criminal defense attorney Maria Forentino with us today. Maria, thank you for joining us so much. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to today. Yes, we have been talking about this for a while and a lot we've got going on today. But before we get started with our conversation, just uh, provide our audience with a little bit of your background. Okay. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Washington, D.C., did all my schooling there, um, undergrad at American University in criminal justice. Then I went to law school at Howard University School of Law. And um, I started working for various attorneys doing this and that. And I did some immigration, which blah, hated, <laughs> you know, it just wasn't my thing. It's criminal law. And uh, I just ended up always going out on my own. And, um, and I just learned how to do it by sitting in the courtroom and watching other attorneys just, and I just took on little district court cases you know, driving on a suspended license, DUI cases, you know, small little things like that, that weren't too complicated. And in between all of that, my parents got older. I had to help my mother care for my father. I had my children also. And um, so I was always in and out of my own practice. But then at one point I worked for an elderly attorney in Rockville and I did a number number of quorum nobis cases, which are like post-conviction. And that's what, um, after uh, I left his employee, I just opened up my own practice again and did post-conviction cases. And the post-conviction cases, they are, they're basically a civil type of case, but they come out of a criminal case. And all my clients were inmates. Most of them, at least 50 year sentences or life. Most mm. of them were. And basically a post-conviction case says there was ineffective assistance of counsel at the trial level, also on the appellate level. And there was uh, prosecutorial misconduct, uh, such as maybe not turning over exculpatory evidence to the defense. And so you're saying, hey, a lot was, was wrong here, and now I want my sentence either overturned or my sentence reduced. Um, those cases are very, very difficult to win. And I also did appeals from those cases, and the appeals are not automatic, like an appeal from your trial. You mm -hmm. have the right to appeal within 30 days and you get the mm -hmm. appeal. But mm -hmm. an appeal from a post-conviction, it has to be accepted. Uh, by the court. And um, I only had a few accepted. And right before I retired, I won one. So I was really happy about that. And so I ended it on uh, uh, with a bang. And with I retired. Bang. Yeah, at end of 2020. But all along, I through all my experiences dealing with the criminal justice system, dealing mm -hmm. with defense, and the prosecution and the courts and then dealing with inmates in the prison system and also dealt with parole 
because I had a number of my clients. Uh, one got out on parole through the uh, approval of Governor Hogan before mm -hmm. the law was changed, which was very recently, that now the governor has been taken out of parole decisions. And um, I have a number of clients out on parole. So I had experience with the parole board also. And I advocated for a number of clients uh, for parole and uh, going to them now. Attorneys can't go before the parole commission. However, we can ask for a meeting with a commissioner to advocate for our client. So, okay. uh, and that's part of my reform here. And um, so I finally decided something it, it, through my undergraduate which was back in, let me see, I graduated in 76, bicentennial year. And they were talking about criminal justice reform then and everything that was wrong with the criminal justice system. And finally, that last year of my practice, I realized that I really wasn't doing my clients any good. I wasn't winning cases. And even if I did win them, it doesn't change the system. There is so much wrong with the system. So I decided I need to write a book. I just need to put my thoughts on paper. Now, I'm not an expert at this. I don't know budgetary issues and, you know, of right. issues and all. But I've read a number of books on criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my book and it's called Interdependency, How to Reform form the criminal justice system and there's my book of yeah that's how we met <laughs> that's how we met and the reason why i entitled it interdependency is that today so much talk is 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 said about reforming the police defunding the police well number one Yes, we need to, re you know, reform the police, but it's not the police isn't the only part of the criminal justice system. You also right. have the bail. And when you look at my book, you can see how all my chapters, you know, my first chapter, of course, mm -hmm. is an introduction. Then the second chapter is on police reform. Mm -hmm. Then the next chapter is on bail reform. Then the next chapter is on sentence reform. Then the next chapter is on prison reform. Next chapter is on parole reform. Then I did a chapter on corruption, oversight, and racism, and then a last chapter on my final thoughts. And, and let me let me let me interrupt you here for a second, and let's let's talk about this because one of the one of the reasons why that you were so insistent. On, on talking about this, particularly at this time, because you wanted to tie it into everything that had been happening uh, the last couple of years with Black Lives Matter and with George Floyd and with Congress presenting or the Senate, you know, presenting uh, presenting a federal policing bill, which unfortunately did not pass. With Kalabui. Yeah, that's with Kalabui. It just... Um, I, I just, it's so sad, but I think this, the whole purpose of my book, and it's a very thin book, as you can tell, mm -hmm. but it doesn't take rocket science to reform the system. What it takes, in my opinion, are two things. 
things, compassion and common sense. Mm -hmm. And the whole, my, the title of interdependency, well, what does that have to do? What does that word have to do with the criminal justice system? Yes. What it has to do with, as I said, it seems like all they're talking about is police reform, but you've got bail that needs to be reformed. You've got, and I have advocated for a number of reformations that can be maybe a bit radical, but I think it's time now to start thinking outside of the box because mm -hmm. we keep doing the same thing, the same thing and expect different results. So it's time to start thinking a little differently because then maybe it will get us into a new direction of things that we, that are even better than what we have now. So interdependency means that all the parts of the criminal justice system, the police, the bail, the sentencing, the courts, mm -hmm. the, the prisons and the parole, they all have to be reformed together so they work together so as the offender goes through the system the system the police is tied in with the bail the bail is tied in with the sentencing the sentencing mm -hmm. is tied in with the prisons and the prisons are tied in with parole now mm -hmm. here's an example a person is in prison and then they get out on parole and what happens they're stopped by the parole system like they're waiting you know to pounce on the poor person yes waiting for them to violate a rule which is not a criminal act just a rule and many of them express a fear to me well maria i'm afraid to violate anything because then i'm going to be going back to prison and mm -hmm. serving out the rest of my term so the thing is, they talk about, well, we have to rehabilitate the offender, the, the rehabilitation. The rehabilitation shouldn't continue in parole. He should already be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. When you read my book, the re and rehabilitation, I don't even think we should use that word anymore. Because that word goes back to, it, it, or to me, I think that you're putting the person back to the situation he was in prior to being arrested. That's not a good place to be. Yes. We want to put that person into a better situation so that Absolutely. when he gets out mm -hmm. of prison, he's ready to live a productive life, a successful life, a law-abiding life. This is a life that we all want to live. We all want to strive for that healthy, happy successful life, productive, safe, you know, life. Mm -hmm. We all want that. Why would we want to be criminals? It just, to me, that doesn't make sense. But in, in one of my chapters, when I also talked about community reformation, yes, communities in these high crime rate areas, you need to reform those. So the people have the same opportunities that other people have in more in other middle class neighborhoods and more affluent neighborhoods and those high crime rate areas all these people know is 
their father is in prison, their brother was shot and killed for because of a bad drug deal. They've got prostitution going on on one corner, drug deals going on on the other, and that's all they know. So how can you build up the community? Well, it starts with the police. It has to start with them because that's the first encounter that a person has with the criminal justice system is the police. Mm -hmm. And I remember as, as I was growing up, and I grew up in DC in a pretty much, it was a like residential and parts of it was commercial area. Um, it was a middle-class neighborhood and we had police officers that my father had his, he was a cobbler, a shoe cobbler and uh, Italian from Italy. And, um, and a lot of the police officers would come in to the shop and talk to my father. Same with the other shop on the other corner. It was a mom and pop grocery store and the officers would come in and, you know, we would know each other by first name and, you know, there was a, um, I don't know, maybe a, a, a bonding with the community. I th and, and I think a lot of it had to more so do, as you were saying at that time too, because I can even remember it in my early youth, um, because I'm, I'm about a decade, less than a decade younger than you are. But I can remember them coming through and they were beat cops. You know, that's what they did. They yeah. knew their neighborhoods. They knew their community. <laughs> and as That's we continue to grow, you know, it, it went from being beat cops to in a car. And you can't know your community if you're always driving around in a car. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and so if you read my my chapter on police reform, I believe that the, the actual police officer who we hire Mm -hmm. has to be of a very strict criteria and they have to have you know not only the education the college education but the desire to help the, these communities that they're put in to and now you have if you if i go into a black community high crime rate area they don't want to have anything to do with the police because the police are ready to arrest them at any the slightest provocation but we need to change that because I remember in my husband's uh, town up in New Jersey, they would have youth, a youth center, which was near the high school. And mm -hmm. that youth center was, you know, going part time during the school year and then full time during the summer. And the police were involved and they were they would certain police officers would have a certain time where they would spend with the kids there, whether mm -hmm. they're playing baseball or whatever, but getting involved with the community and and fostering the trust. And that's what's lost here. Yes, yes. And, and when they talked about, and I think one of the things that is, is a hot button for people, and we've talked about this before, is when they say defunding the police, oh. we're not meaning defund the police. We're meaning reallocate funds to uh -huh. where they are specifically needed to help make the reform of policing and parole and bail and sentencing. That's right. Cause I think, you know, this, 
um, I think a lot of people think defunding, we got to take money away from the police. We got to get rid of the police. No. First of all, I believe that defunding is the wrong term. We need to shift the money, number one, but we need to add more money because we need to hire the best and brightest people that we can find because they're the ones that are in the community, but not only the police. We also have to have other people that that deal with nonviolent situations like uh, maybe someone who's having some drug, he's ODing on drugs or there's something else going on where you really don't need the police, but you need uh, psychologists, social workers involved. They're not unarmed. In my book, I mentioned, I think it was somewhere in California where they tried this. It was a non um, uh, um, an unarmed unit that was, they would go around in a van and it was marked what they were, their purpose it was to come in with like maybe domestic um, cases uh, where there's uh, domestic violence or whatever, where you need someone in there, a psychologist, psychiatrists, social workers, not the police coming in, guns, you know, blaring and, you know, we don't want, that's not what we need. So we right. need this special unit to work in conjunction with the police. But the police also has to be specially trained to, to know. So in other words, the police that are put into a certain neighborhood, they will be trained as to what is going on in that neighborhood, the people who live there, the businesses that are there, and the problems that they have. And you should have those, um, what do you call those um, town hall meetings? Yes. All the time. Town hall meetings should be had at least once a month, meeting with the residents, the business owners, to, and, and the police are involved and social workers are involved, psychologists. And when you have drug treatment programs in these neighborhoods, because if you get rid of, and this is something in, that has to do with the sentencing reform and prison reform. Mm -hmm. Get rid of drug crimes, whether it's possession or distribution. Drug, drug crimes, taking drugs, it's not a crime. It's a disease and it should be treated that way. So if you take all those people out of prison that are in there, and before we used to have these mandatory minimums of mm -hmm. 10 years, yeah. For, and first offense, second offense, and third offense, and they would get higher, higher, just because he sold drugs. Most of the people that sell drugs are trying to make money just to support their own habit. So they have a disease, they have an illness that has to be treated. So when you think about taking all those people out of prison, look how and and housing all those prisoners, that loosens up money to put these treatment programs into the prisons and also into the communities, also into the schools, improve the schools in those communities. They should be programs in the schools after school hours where they have special subjects, whether it's reading, English, math, science, to help those students that are falling below. And they should be workshops there after school and the teachers mm -hmm should be there working with the students to help them get onto grade level and even beyond that. And 
that's where we're missing out. And you got to, that's where the interdependency, you see, if the police, it's specially trained to deal with the people that are in the neighborhoods and help the kids stay away from crime and get them involved in good, healthy activities, have the schools involved. And then when you, when someone gets arrested, then we go, oh, the bail system. Here we have the bail system where people can't afford the bail. So they languish in prison until they have to go to trial. And so that affects, you know, they're taken away from their home. If they have a job, they lose their job, taken away from their family and their children. And there's financial problems. So mm. what should be done with the bail is that there should be a bail program. So these people, okay, let's find out what, if you have a drug problem, let's get you into drug rehab, into mm -hmm. your community and get you counseling that you may need to deal with some of the problems that you're having. Get them started into some vocational training. So there's, you know, there's hope for these people. They go into bail, they can't afford their bail. Where is their hope to be better people and and then that goes into the sentencing and mm -hmm. i here's another radical thing get rid <laughs> of life sentences what is why do we have to have these life sentences i have guys in prison that have already served 30 years and they're already now well into their 50s and early 60s you know, it, there's a change the, the, in their maturity level. And when it came to all the juvenile cases that just came up mm -hmm. several years ago to talk about the development of maturity from 15 to 25, and mm -hmm. they're even talking about early 20s, they're not mature enough, you know? So why are you giving life sentences without parole to a juvenile matter of fact you shouldn't even give life sentences and you should give no life sentences to anybody sentences should be indeterminate but if you read my book it explains why because when they get sentenced they're going to have all kinds of programs in the prisons whether it's you know drug treatment programs alcohol mm -hmm. treatment programs you're loosening up all the money because you're you're reducing the sentences. So they're not staying in prison for the rest of their lives. It costs a lot of money to house one prisoner for one year, much less the rest of their lives. Then you have, you've got old people in there now. Prisons are gonna become nursing homes. <laughs> so if you in, institute programs in the prisons where the judges, when they sentence the, the offender, Mm -hmm. They put them in the program and the offender may even have some input as to, as to what program they want to be in, whether it's an educational program, if they've already finished high school. Well, yeah, I would like to go on to college. Well, today there's so many required courses that have been taken. Mm -hmm. They should have those in the prisons. And then after he get, but it's not only just that, drug treatment, alcohol treatment. Drug treatment should be maybe the 12-step program, which takes at least a year to get through. Then you've got all the different uh, uh, vocational skills, whether mm -hmm. it's plumber, electrician, mm -hmm. anything like that, carpenter. 
So, so let me, let me, uh, and this is great conversation and great information. A lot of people would probably agree with you with except of that maybe 10 to 20% of, of people that we know just uh-huh. don't want to be reformed. So uh-huh. what would we do for those individuals? Okay. Now this, this, I know I had one, one in May, he's still up there in Cumberland. He's probably been in prison. I'm thinking now probably going on 27 years, but give or take a year or so. Um, he was in, um, when he was arrested and, and convicted, he was in his early 20s, uh, considered notorious. So he um, was put in the federal penitentiary because the federal, federal penitentiary, Maryland, the Maryland prisoners have contracts with federal penitentiaries to house Maryland prisoners there. And he was housed there and, and in the federal penitentiary system, an attorney could email. We could mm-hmm. email our clients, which was wonderful. So many times he told me that most of the guys in there just made bad decisions in their lives, got involved with the wrong people, just went down the wrong road. However, there are some that are pure evil. And he said, I would like I try to avoid them as best I can, but sometimes it's hard. It's hard. Mm-hmm. There are the evil ones that cannot be reformed. And those are the ones that need to stay in prison for their for a life sentence. But they should not be taken out of these programs. Let them go through okay. programs. Let's see what happens. If there is a chance 25 years, 30 years down the road, because this is what I say. Most of the people that get arrested for crimes, whether it's armed robbery, it's usually people in their 20s, early 30s. You don't see too many people in their 60s getting arrested. It changes. So give the person, let's see what happens. He has to serve a life sentence, but also give him the opportunity to see if he doesn't make those changes that Maybe he can be reformed, but if he can't, he has a life sentence. So you you do have to consider those people. And we have to get away from, now this is prison reform, get mm-hmm. away from you know, punishment and more on the form, the notion of reform and assistance and supporting. Okay. Because the juvenile justice system, the way that works, is they want to take they want to keep the juveniles out of the criminal justice system they don't right. want them to become career criminals so there's always programs that they put them in well why can't we do that for the adults you can say well you know they're already mature oh come on you're mature at 25 i know i was i know i wasn't what <laughs> know now? If knew, back then what i know now I'd be hell on wheels. <laughs> you know, that's it's just the way uh, human development goes. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, there should be that getting away from that notion of punishment, because when you put a, pris- a person in prison, mm-hmm. the punishment is already there. He's taken away from his family, taken away from his friends, taken away from his home. If he has a job, he's taken away from his job. And he's put in prison and there's the punishment right there. But unfortunately, 
these prisoners keep getting punished because no one talks about how badly some of these, a lot of these inmates are treated by the prison authority. I've heard stories from inmates that made me cry. These inmates are human. They're not animals. They should not be treated as animals. They need to be treated with respect, with dignity. They need to be helped and assisted to become better people. And that's where the criminal, that's where the prison system and the criminal justice system is lacking. Mm -hmm. They treat these people as second-class citizens. They're no good. No, get to know some of these people. You know, they're really, they can be helped. And most of them can be helped. And when you reform the system, but put the programs in there, that's going to help them. Then when they get out on parole, they're already reformed. So then parole helps with the reacclimation into society and helps them with things like, well, how do I get my credit up? How do I find a place to live? Do I rent? Do I, can I buy a home? Uh, what about a job? What about you know continued skill training? Because that is done in prison. Train like if a person wants to become a plumber, he'll be trained as a plumber. He'll go through the procedure, through the um, uh, I guess the training program to become a full fledged plumber. But that doesn't happen until he goes through counseling, drug, alcohol rehab if he needs it. It takes a long time to get through all of this. That's why I say it's the sentence should not be a life sentence. It should be just indeterminate. Let's see what they do. And they're constantly supervised. They're going to school. They're going to training. They're going to counseling. You know, they're getting their medical issues addressed and, and mm -hmm. taken care of. So mm -hmm. they're busy all day long. They should be busy all day long. And meanwhile, they're being continuously monitored and evaluated. And if they fail a certain section of their program, they have to repeat it. So okay. know how long it's going to take for a person to get through all these programs. But they have to be evaluated all the time. And then when it comes time to, oh, they finish their program and they have to successfully complete these at a high level. It's almost like college. It's not enough to get a C. You got to get A's. You got uh, you got to, there has to be a certain standard of excellence that an inmate has to achieve before he's released. And then parole has to decide, well, let's see where he's, you know, what he's done. Let's see how he's succeeded in all his programs. And then parole has to be reformed too, which is a sorry state of affairs. There's no um, uh, transparency in there. The, um, the, they have evaluations done on the inmate and he doesn't get to see it. It's not shared with the inmate and not shared with the attorney. And even if he has the attorney, the attorney cannot participate in the parole hearing. He's just an observer. The parole hearing should be, is just as important as trial. So it should be made that way. So he has, so a, a, an inmate has the right to have an attorney with him 
and the attorney should have the right to cross-examine and have expert testimony. It should be open and transparent and should be just like a trial. It should be quick. It shouldn't the, some of these parole steps and parole can take months and years before they finish. And it's, it's insane. So read my book. It's, you know, and it doesn't take rocket science, you know, to, I guess with me, I've, I've seen all these things and it's just my opinion and how I feel it should be reformed, but they're not, they just talk about police reform. They don't talk about all the other parts of the criminal justice system that needs reform and they have to be reformed together. So as the offender works through the program, mm -hmm. it goes from one to another, one part to another, and it's consistent. And it's always about assistance and reformation and support. Wow. Yes, indeed. So this book is actually out today. Yay. Yay. And where you love to buy your reading materials, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Tar I even saw Target uh, was promoting it. So um, you can get it online. Um, if it's, they don't have it in the store, they will order it for you. Um, it is out today. I know this is your baby. This has been your life's passion. And we've had many conversations on this for any, anybody that is interested in um, having you speak on criminal reform. Uh, how can they get a hold of you? Oh, well, they can get a hold of me through my web, my, uh, my uh, email, which is MDC at Fiorentino law firm.com. And Fiorentino is F as in Frank, I-O-R-E-N-T-I-N-O. And I have that, I think, at the back of my book, or is it the front? No, about the author. And yes, at the back. The mm -hmm. book. And it's there, um, and you can reach me by, me by email, and then I'll be more than happy to talk with you over the phone. Wonderful, wonderful. Let me see if... Make sure I put it up here so people can see it. MDC at FiorentinoLawFirm.com. Now, yes. of course, my law firm isn't open. That I've retired, but I still have. <laughs> I still, but believe it or not, I'm still helping some clients, and you know, and um, I have several that still call me. That still call me. One calls me once a month. The one that uh, was released by Governor Hogan. Uh, he calls me once a month to make sure I'm okay. Uh, and and uh, I really, uh, I helped him get out. Actually, we were, um, uh, I had I did his post-conviction and if I recall, and um, then I found out that his case was before Governor Hogan for um, Governor Hogan to approve parole and he approved it. And uh, so it was great, but he served 30 years in prison. Wow. And that's and that's definitely another conversation that I'm definitely interested in to have you back to actually talk about how the parole commission really works, because I'm, I'm not familiar uh, or have enough information on that to see why would we involve the governors in that or should we continue well, to involve the governors in that? Well, I think what happened when they, it was Governor Glenn Denning that did it. Now he says that was a big mistake on his part. 
because what it is, it becomes political. You have all these um, uh, groups uh, that want to keep uh, people in prison because they're afraid, or oh, if they get out, they're going to start committing crimes. Well, yeah, because the criminal justice system doesn't work. If you reform it, you know, I'm not saying the way I said in my book, mm -hmm. but reform it in such a way that it reforms the person into a better person that he wants to succeed in life. And he has the, the wherewithal to do it because most people that are in prison don't have the wherewithal. Some of them haven't even finished high school. And the ones that have, they have no skill. So what kind of job can you get? And so you sell drugs, you know, but it becomes a, 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 a terrible way to live life. And I'm sure that's not how people really want to live their life. And mm -hmm. they want to feel good about themselves and what they do. So, um, you know, get my book and read it. I'm not saying I'm, I'm an expert on this, but I think we need more compassion for the offender. And we don't have that. And I think maybe one of the reasons why, or maybe some, maybe one of the reasons why people may not agree with certain things that I've said, like no life sentences, let no drug crimes, they're scared. There's fear. Well, you're going to let these people out and, and they're going to come in my neighborhood and they're going to commit crimes. Well, not if you reform the the criminal justice system to reform the person so they're not going to want to commit crimes. They're going to have something because here I was raised in a middle class neighborhood. My father did well. My father and mother were Italian immigrants and I wanted to go to college and all my friends went to college. I went to private schools, Catholic schools, but there was, I had that opportunity. You know, and I remember my parents, my, my, my high school tuition was $700 a year. Well, I wish it was still $700. <laughs> what is it like 25, 30, $40,000 for private school? That's not college. <laughs> so you use that money, then what do they do? Where are you going to have the money for college? But I had those opportunities and the opportunity to, to go to college and I'm surrounded by that. I'm surrounded by people that that want to have careers and make, make something of their lives. But the people that come from these high crime rate neighborhoods, they don't have that. And it's so sad. And I can't understand when people say, oh, well, they can get out of that neighborhood. They can go. Oh, come on. Can they really? I mean, you really have to be a kind of person that headstrong and, and tunnel vision, I'm getting out of this neighborhood, but there's no support for them. There's mm -hmm. no, and the schools in those neighborhoods aren't the greatest either. So they don't, you know, really stress education and learning and, and let the kids really want to learn. And that needs to change too. Mm -hmm. We have to have better schools in those neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah, it used it used to be. Uh, I know when I was in my um, early teens, late late teens, we had a village of individuals around us. It started from within the family 
to within our neighborhood and branched out from there. So I could remember, uh, you know, um, because my parents were divorced, but I could remember living in Texas. There was my mom, there was my grandparents, there were my aunts and uncles. My uncle worked at the high school, so he saw me every day. So it wasn't like I could get away with stuff. (laughs) And then when I went to go live with my father, he was so well connected in the community that everybody knew who I was. You know, so it was like, if I went somewhere, he was like, you never know who I know. So I'm just telling you beforehand, you know, so even then, you know, it was, you know, started again, neighborhood, the neighbors, you know, and it was a two way partnership. You know, his neighbors didn't have kids, but my dad worked nights, but the neighbors always looked out. That's right. We were, if we were, where are you going? Yes. And then it's an old African proverb as well. It takes a village. The village. And that's what it is. You know, not only the people that live in the neighborhood, but just if you read my book on community reform and how the police can play a role in those communities, you know, that it, it, it becomes a village. You know, the police, so the kids, when they're walking down the street, they see a police officer, they already know him by name. And, and oh, we're going to play baseball. There's a big baseball game tonight. You know, right. and the police are involved. The the counselors and drug cl- counselors are involved with all mm-hmm. of that. There's mm-hmm. drug rehab programs mm-hmm. in the schools because kids are taking drugs at an early age. Why? Because it's all around them. It's all they know. They need to be. They need to experience a better way of life. And we need to bring that into those neighborhoods. And it's going to take a village, you know, everything. It's going to take everyone that's in that that community to lift it up, get the police involved, get social workers, psychologists, the schools, the churches, everyone involved. To Diligent. Lift up, yes. To lift up that community. And so good things come out of that community, not bad things. And that's what I'd like to see, you know, and so it's to me, it's it's common sense, common sense and compassion for our fellow man. And and it's lacking today. It's lacking today in our government. It's lacking everywhere, you know, and it's just a sad, sad thing. But, um, you know, I hope people get my little book and it's very easy reading. Um, I didn't do. It's not a treatise. It's not a big research project that I did. It just comes from all my years of experience and studying uh, and seeing what I see in the prisons and what I hear from my clients and from their families and also from nonprofit organizations that I've been involved with. And And that's where all this came from. And then my own thoughts, well, how can this be reformed, you know, and be reformed in such a way that the product is a good, positive product, not a negative one? Because if you keep punishing and punishing, what what product do you get in the end? Someone who's rebellious. I mean, what happens to a child punish a child and you don't give them that love and the support and the respect that they need? You know, yes. They turn you the noise. You're right. They, you they turn the noise punishment. off. Mm-hmm. That's right. You do need discipline, but there's mm-hmm. a discipline and punishment. You know, I've heard cases, stories where um, 
an inmate wasn't feeling well, he went to the infirmary in the prison. This was, I think, in the federal penitentiary. And he was turned away and he came back in, in his cell and he cried. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we put these people in prison and then we're not going to take care of them. Not only medically, but psychologically, there's so much mental illness. Why are we treating these people like animals? It makes me cry. It shouldn't be that way. But this is this is what it's common sense and compassion. Well, Maria, I appreciate you coming on this morning. We have had an enlightened conversation. Your book definitely starts the conversation, which is what you wanted. Yes. Uh, again, the name of the book is Interdependency, How to Reform the Criminal Justice System, A View from a Criminal Defense Attorney. Maria Forentino, thank you for being my guest this morning on Unapologetic Features. And just a, a public service announcement for those of you that can join me tomorrow. I'm going to have Sandra Kersey Stockton on. She's going to talk about generational history and her ministry and love of foster care. You don't want to miss that conversation. She and her husband have foster cared over 100 children in our Maryland area. Wonderful woman has a wonderful story to tell. I'm going to have you back on my show, Maria. Okay. We've got a lot more to discuss about this, and hopefully this starts the conversation, which is what you wanted. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Lisa Harwell, and this is Journeys with Jones Harwell. See you next time. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>